What's up? Welcome into the JC Gonzalez Sports Podcast here on a Friday. And what a week it has been, guys. Conference championships coming up. And we'll get you all ready for the biggest NFL weekend so far this year. AFC, NFC Championship, Rams Saints, Chiefs Patriots. But hey, your team's probably not in it. It's only an eighth of the league, right? But if your team isn't one of the ones that made it this far, you still may be in luck. I'm going to talk about some of the other teams in the NFL as well. Uh, of course, I'm going to break down both games, NFC, AFC title game. I went 3-1 and one last week. My only miss was on Rams-Cowboys. I uh, didn't like the matchup, but the Rams impressed me. Um, and I went 3-1 and one last week in the divisional round. And today, I'm going to get back into the NBA. There's been some big storylines this week. Some Kyrie Irving, some James Harden that I... Uh, we'll get into it later. Uh, I can't wait to get started today. It's going to be a great show. I'm going to jump right in. Conference Championship Week has always been a big deal in the NFL. It just is. It's the week that decides who is in the Super Bowl, America's biggest TV event of the year, who gets the million-dollar commercials, who gets the attention, media days, all of that. Might be at uh, Super Bowl media days, by the way. Uh, But may I propose to you that there has never been a Conference Championship Week that will mark such a turning point in the league as this Sunday will. The 2018 season was the year of the new NFL, the high-powered offenses with young, innovative coaches who, with the relationship with the quarterback, they tossed the ball all over the yard uh, with the young guys, and it all was highlighted and encapsulated. Um, it climaxed with that Monday night football game in Los Angeles we all saw. So when I say new NFL this week, I'm talking the Chiefs and the Rams. They characterized the revolution that took over the league this year. Um, they're the ones who are the innovative offenses changing football in the eyes of the media and much of the public. But it's so interesting, the parallels we have here this conference championship week, because just as we have the two titans of the new NFL remaining, we also have two pillars of the old NFL, Patriots, Saints. Um, Yeah, you get Sean Payton, Bill Belichick, two absolute veterans, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, two veteran quarterbacks. So while the Chiefs and the Rams have young, inexperienced quarterbacks, Goff and Mahomes, um... And these innovative offenses throwing the ball deep, the Patriots and Saints are way more similar than the media would lead you to believe. Because the media kind of tries to lump the Saints in. These are the four best offensive teams in the league, I will say that. But people kind of try to lump the Saints into the Rams and the Chiefs, and that's not quite accurate. Because Drew Brees doesn't throw the ball down the field anymore. Despite, you know, a multitude of weapons, Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara. And Sean Payton and Bill Belichick are both veteran Super Bowl winning coaches who run the ball and make things happen in the short passing game. My point overall here is that this clash of styles is going to determine the league's future moving forward. This is a copycat league. Teams see who won the Super Bowl, they go poach their staff immediately after. They see whatever the new hot thing is, and that's what everyone starts copying, if that makes sense. We saw the Wildcat, the read option, the RPO, and so last year, one of the big things that was done on a personnel level, not quite on a a scheme play design level, was the Eagles splashed in free agency a year before their Super Bowl triumph. And so this year, this offseason, that sparked contenders to buy big in free agency. The Rams is the, the main team we saw do this. You know the Chiefs got go Sammy Watkins. If the Rams win the Super Bowl this year, the Sean McVay prototype, you think it's bad now. It will be even more pronounced. Zach Taylor, the quarterback coach, looking linked heavily to Cincinnati. This new NFL, old NFL the class of styles, the labels aren't exactly right, like the like the media would kind of have you believe, 
The Rams are more of the inside zone, outside zone, ground-and-pound running team since the loss to Philadelphia. It's kind of characteristic of an old NFL offense. Um, well, the Chiefs are coached by Andy Reid, a seasoned veteran who, and one of the best coaches of this era. He hasn't won a Super Bowl yet, and he's been known for his postseason struggles and being great in September, which are characteristics of kind of new NFL teams. But all in all, the big point here is that this week will define whether the keys to the league moving forward will be in the hands of the old NFL or the new NFL. Will we see more teams go like, like a hire like Cliff Kingsbury? Will there be more hires like that? Or will we see teams go more in the direction of like, hey, let's take a step back here and let's get a guy like Mike McCarthy? I'm not saying either one is right or wrong. Two teams are here that did it this way. Two teams are here that did it that way. I think there's a happy medium here for both. I think there's certain situations where, hey, you'd rather have a guy like a Sean McVay. And there's situations where, hey, you'd rather have a guy like a Sean Payton, you know? Um, but I think because the league is so driven on finding a winning formula until that formula eventually is found, they're going to try to, you know, copy it. And so whoever wins is going to be the template for the league moving forward. And so when you watch the games this weekend, don't just think about the games, who's going to the Super Bowl, who's going to have the ads. Think more big picture. Think macro. That's my opening take on Super Bowl, or I guess conference championship weekend, but now I'm going to switch gears over to the NBA. Kyrie Irving came out the other day, and he had to call LeBron James. And he said he had to call LeBron James to apologize for the things he did as a young player that caused the blow-up in Cleveland. First things first, before I really dig into this, I do want to seriously commend Kyrie Irving for having the self-awareness, which is a trait that I, didn't, I wasn't convinced that he had to come out and recognize his part in the situation. Not many professional athletes, not many alpha dog basketball players especially, will come out and say that, hey man, that one's on me. Um, so props to Kyrie for that. But I've been saying since the moment he demanded a trade, I've been saying this, the whole world wanted to just pin this whole thing on LeBron to push their nobody wants to play with LeBron narrative. They wanted to make, villainize LeBron again in this situation. And I just, I kept saying, look, Kyrie values being the man more than he does having a real shot at a title. And what he just said yesterday is basically as close as I will ever get to JC, you were right. Kyrie had it made. He was universally loved, viewed as a superstar, won a championship, and was the next in line to take over the throne once LeBron hung it up finally. It's a lot like um, if you watch Neymar leave Barcelona, it's a very, very similar situation you know, playing with Lionel Messi. But they said in their shadow, I guess. But all of this, so they, they both had all this good, but this is about Kyrie Irving. Kyrie had all of this, and he had none of the pressure that comes with being the best player and a contender. None of the responsibility. And that is something LeBron has had his entire career. And before you know it, Kyrie's in Boston with all the expectation on the Celtics to beat Golden State. That is the expectation. He took LeBron to seven games, other two best players, and now he's gone. For the first time in his career, the Celtics turn to Kyrie and say, you must now deal with the expectations and responsibilities of being the leader and best player on a contender. And so far this season... 
I hate to say it, but he and the Celtics have absolutely crumbled under that under that pressure. And I've been saying all season, it feels like they're going to get it right. They're going to get it right. They will get it right. Right? But they just don't. Kyrie does not lead young guys the way LeBron did. And that's one thing he's trying to, to say here. He doesn't elevate the guys around him. Gordon Hayward comes back. He's a shell of himself. And the young core that took the Celtics so far last year is worse with Kyrie. How's that possible? Let's dig into this a bit. So when they go and they don't have Kyrie or Gordon Hayward, the NBA is star-driven. It's built on star power. But there is a place in this league for coachability. And without Kyrie or Gordon on the floor, the Celtics, led by Al Horford, the biggest veteran, and just a group of young guys were like, listen, we're all in on this Brad Stevens thing. Brad Stevens has to be the central piece here to lead us. And that is exactly what happened. They bought in. And Brad Stevens led them. He took them as far as that roster could possibly go. But now Kyrie's back. And Kyrie sets an example that he is above Brad Stevens. So if he shows that example, what is Terry Rozier supposed to think? Oh, Kyrie doesn't listen to Brad Stevens. Why do I have to listen to Brad Stevens? Think I'm wrong? You see Kyrie get into a blow-up on the sidelines with Brad Stevens in the Magic game? Didn't like a play call? LeBron doesn't do that. Not with a coach he respects. He might not respect Luke Walton, might not listen to his play calls, but if he was being coached by, you know, Brad Stevens, I don't think that happens. The other thing is, he in that same game, actually, he gets into it with uh, with Gordon Hayward. <laughs> I mean, yelling at, a, at another star teammate trying to recover from his uh, bad injury, that's not a very leader quality. And so now he's struggling with developing these young guys into a title-winning core. But the real reason Boston did so well last year was Brad Stevens. And the casual fan doesn't want to hear this Kyrie take. They love Kyrie for the cool shoes, the dribble moves, and Uncle Drew. They saw him in the movies. You know, they they want to love this guy. But the harsh reality of it is, and I'm being realistic here, he's closer to Russell, uh, to Russell Westbrook, a star who isn't selfless enough to lead a team to a title, then he is to LeBron James. Russell Westbrook, or uh, Kyrie Irving, is more Russ than he is LeBron, the ultimate selfless player. Recognizing what he did, what Kyrie said here, about what happened in Cleveland, that's the first step. I'm giving him credit for that. But this is just a small piece to show that now that he is in the shoes of the veteran, he's got a lot more work to do. And, he's, and the other thing is you, you wonder, he's flaking on the Celtics possibly to join the Knicks. Um, so when he gets that first thought of responsibility, does he bolt out the door? It's going to be a very interesting rest of the season and offseason for Boston because we've been talking for so long about this rebuild, and it's finally here, and they never did cash in on those young players. They never did. They held out, they held out, they held out, and they never cashed in. It'll be very, very interesting what happens if Kyrie Irving, if they lose earlier than expected, maybe in the Eastern Conference to the Bucs, doubt it, but who knows with the Raptors. And Kyrie says, I'm headed to New York. Bank the franchise on you. Responsibility was too much. We'll see what happens. I'm going to switch back over. Uh, this is one of my favorite segments of the year. Now, all year long, I've been giving you my top 10 NFL teams each and every week. 
And last week, we didn't have 10 teams left, so I ranked the eight remaining playoff teams. I'm not going to do that same thing with four. Um, we're switching it up this time. I'm a, it's, it's different. I'm going to call it the best of the rest. And here's how it works. We will rank the teams with the brightest futures, top 10 teams with the brightest futures, excluding the ones still alive this year because they're clearly the four elite teams in the league. They're the top four offenses. They're the top four in yards per play. They are a cut above everyone else. With that being said, this is not who had the best season outside of the top four. I'm taking a macro, big picture approach, looking into the future in you know, three, five years down the line, who will still be there. Let's get it started. At number 10, it is the Los Angeles Chargers. Um, I felt a lot better about the Chargers' future before that game. And why is that? Um, Anthony Lynn had raised some serious questions for me during that New England Patriots blowout loss. Um, I thought Anthony Lynn was, and he still could be the answer, but just the way he set up his defense in a base package with six um, players in the secondary and New England just ran it down their throats and they made no adjustment, that worries me. That's seriously concerning to me because the fact that he can't, all great coaches can adjust. And that tells me there's a possibility that the Chargers are a coach away. And Phillip Rivers being as old as he is, there could be a quarterback away, not much further. It doesn't matter how great of a roster you have. If you don't have the coach right, you don't have the quarterback right, you're not going anywhere. And the Chargers roster is still good enough to keep them on the list, but three to five years from now, are we sure Phillip Rivers is still the quarterback? Are we sure Anthony Lynn is still the coach? I mean, they both went full-on Chargers and crumbled in a big game. They're at 10. Number nine, it's the Baltimore Ravens, and this one will shock a lot of people because they have a great roster, they have a lot of young pieces, and of course they have Lamar Jackson. I've been saying all year, look, do not fall for Lamar Jackson. This is just, it's, I mean, he's got a good head on his shoulders, he's a good guy, he impressed me as a rookie, of course he did. You know who else impressed me as a rookie, playing the same way? RG3 did. I just, don't fall for it, Tim Tebow did this. They have a great defense. They have a great coach. They have a system in place and a way to win that's unorthodox. At the end of the day, man, if you're going to win in this league, you got to be able to throw the ball down the field. Or you just got to be able to yeah, and throw accurately. And Lamar Jackson, just to me, I don't see him as a solution beyond three years, three, five years. I mean, and either way, it's probably not a Super Bowl winning future. I mean, they have an elite roster now, and they can only do this. Um how are they ever going to elevate? So I think the Ravens could definitely be a quarterback away. And the only thing that puts them above the uh, above the Chargers that I think I know they have the coach right. I know I've been saying John Harbaugh is a good coach, a Super Bowl winning coach. So they got that right. They have a good roster. Quarterback, I'm not sold on Lamar Jackson just yet. I'm not ready to declare him the next great. I mean, if he develops as a passer, then that could be different, but... Unless that happens, then I have serious concerns about him moving forward uh, as a thrower of the football in this league. And at number eight, I'm going to check in with the Cleveland Browns. They have a great roster, and they have a good young quarterback in Baker Mayfield. But my concern here is that they just did not get the coaching hire right with Freddie Kitchens. Um, people praise his relationship with Baker. They praise uh, the fact that he's a young, offensive mind, but the dude's never been hired to be a coordinator. I got into it last week. But the point is, I think the Browns have a good roster and a good quarterback. 
Uh, not a star, I don't think, down the line. But my big issue is that I don't think they got the coach right, the hire right. Um, I think they should have gone in a different direction with that. Um, maybe just keep Greg Williams and keep Freddie Kitchens in the coordinator, honestly, at that point. But that's my take on the Browns. I'll keep them at number eight. At number seven, it's the Houston Texans, who, again, people, a lot of people feel like they should be higher because they had such a good regular season, but at the end of the day, ultimately fell flat in the playoffs because of the, and the roster is aging. Bill O'Brien, we're not still not sure on Bill O'Brien. It feels like it's been so many years, and no one can decide whether or not Bill O'Brien is a good coach or not. Um, and that, that's such a funny thought to me because of how, like, like long he's been the coach of the Texans. But um, And the roster is aging. That's the key here. That's one of the big things. They have quarterback right. Coach, eh. Uh, and roster getting older. It's not, you know, it's not getting any younger over there. And that's why I got Houston at seven. At number six is the Dallas Cowboys. And this is really a compliment to the roster because they're kind of the anti-Texans. Or I guess, not maybe even not even that. They just have a really good roster that's young, but the coach is eh, and the quarterback is eh. It makes sense. Like they're okay, they're good at coach, and they're good at quarterback. They're great at a roster, uh, as a as a team is holistically. But I'm not sold on Jason Garrett. Haven't been for a long time, and I'm still. You can't convince me on this Dak Prescott thing. I just, he's limited, and I don't, I can't really see a way for the Cowboys to win a Super Bowl with a highly paid average quarterback in Dak Prescott, which he will be highly paid. The only chance the Cowboys have of just not being just a divisional team and NFC winner, but NFC East winner, I should say, but not really getting that far is if Dak Prescott will take a hometown discount so they can, uh, you know, keep bringing in these guys through the draft and keep some of them in free agency when they when they hit the market. Dak cannot be making $28 million a year. That just, it can't happen. Uh, Cowboys at six. At number five, I'm going to put the Chicago Bears. Um, I like the coach. Love the coach, Matt Nagy. Love the roster. Don't like Mitch Trubisky. And so I think they're a quarterback away. And uh, for all of these teams, I would suggest they start looking to the draft. Maybe not this year, because I don't really like any of the quarterbacks in this class. But definitely next year and moving forward. As we get into the Justin Herbert, uh, Trevor Lawrence kind of, and Tua Tagovailoa are three big quarterbacks I can see having good NFL futures. Those are the guys we should be looking to, and the, maybe the Bears should look for one of them. But Trubisky is okay, I guess, at his ceiling. He's like, for me, he's like a first year or a second year Jared Goff at best. He doesn't have the star ceiling that Goff has, but he can be good at best under Matt Nagy with all the weapons in a college offense. Uh, the roster's great. They've got Khalil Mack signed long-term. Got to keep him healthy. Bears at five. At number four, it's the Seahawks, and they are this high because they have it right at the two most important spots. Coach, quarterback, Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson. They still, and they, re, they reworked the way they run the ball, which has been excellent this year. They've revamped the defense around Bobby Wagner. They have one central piece to build around, a star on each side of the ball, and, the great, and a right head coach. Draft well a couple times. They have a good O-line. This team will be a threat in the NFC West before you know it. Seahawks at four. This is where it gets fun for brightest futures here. Because, you know, uh, the Browns didn't make the playoffs, but other than that, all of these teams have been playoff teams. This is fun. At number three, it's the Atlanta Falcons, a team who I thought very highly of going into the season, but they came into it just absolutely broken. Um, hurt all over the field, especially on defense. 
they move on from Steve Sarkeesian and their defensive coordinator. I'm thankful that they did because I think both of those were not great moves. Um, but the Falcons just have such a good roster. They have a good quarterback. Dan Quinn is a good coach, not a great one. Um, but overall, I think the Falcons do have a bright future next year, in the next three years, and in the next five years to once again bounce back if they could just stay healthier. They have one of the best rosters in the league. Uh, Falcons at three. At number two, it is the San Francisco 49ers, another team that I was very high on coming into the season. I had them as a wild card. Um, didn't work out that way, mostly because of a Jimmy Garoppolo injury and the fact that I kind of overestimated the speed of the rest of the rebuild in terms of roster. Um, but here's the thing. They have coach 100% right, Kyle Shanahan. They have quarterback 100% right, Jimmy Garoppolo. I like both of those guys. They have been building through the draft with great rosters. This is a huge opportunity to build again on the defensive side of the ball. Because Jimmy G was hurt for a year, they get another star player on that end. And before you know it, the 49ers could be a serious threat to the Rams. In the NFC West, I really like what they're doing, what they're building in San Francisco. 49ers at two. And number one, it's the Indianapolis Colts. Look, Andrew Luck was amazing this year with Frank Reich and this offensive line that we all saw. Darius Leonard on the defensive side of the ball. They have so many picks and so much cap space. I mean, they're the favorites for Le'Veon Bell. Okay, that changes everything dynamically in the running game, in the passing game. That gives Andrew like a huge weapon. They go get some help in the secondary. They're going to be scary good. They are the next great team in the NFL, and I can say that with certainty. I am very confident that the Colts will be the best team, best of the rest, moving forward, the brightest futures in the NFL, and that's my take on that. Heading back over to the NBA, um, I almost feel obligated to talk about this James Harden thing. Uh, <laughs> it was honestly a non-story to me, uh, but people in some of the media want to get out the pom-poms for great regular season basketball again, so here's me, the realist. Um, stop me if you've heard this one before. James Harden has been amazing, if you've never heard of what usage rate means. And uh, and the Rockets can challenge Golden State. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Anyone remember Derrick Rose has been amazing? And the Bulls can challenge the Heat. Or how about 42 triple-doubles? Russell Westbrook is better than LeBron. Stop it. Stop. I feel like this happens every regular season because fans just honestly... They get so bored waiting for the playoffs. They need something to care about, to get passionate about, to watch. Listen, man, James Harden gives so much during this regular season to get all these numbers and awards. But anyone notice what happens in May and June when NBA legends are really made? He shrinks. Why? Because he's dead tired from 82 games of stat stuffing. Ever notice the Golden State Warriors put everything they had into that into the 82 games for that record? a regular season award, then they inexplicably blew it against the Cavs and LeBron, who understand the value of saving yourself for the playoffs? Spoiler alert. If you don't want to know exactly what happens to the Rockets in the playoffs, stop listening now. They play Golden State in either the second round or the Western Conference Finals, and they're going to chuck up a million threes. James Harden is going to shoot under 30% from behind the arc, and he's going to have such bad shot selection, just chucking things up from anywhere. You can't even believe what you just saw, because he expects playoff refereeing and foul calls to be the exact same as the Grizzlies on a Wednesday night in February. <laughs> That's what he is going to expect out of playoff refereeing. Golden State will tread water for three quarters to let the Rockets wear themselves out, and then they'll win comfortably by 12 points. 
this story ends the same way every time. Like, I can't believe people keep falling for this hot new thing that's better than whatever. It The, the guard who goes off for a million points every night. It, it goes the same way every time. It's still a wing league. It's still a, a league driven by multiple stars. Golden State has the most of them. Golden State has a coaching advantage. They have an advantage at every position on the floor. You don't want to hear it. But look, James Harden in the playoffs is a shot fighter. He puts himself over the team. You don't want to hear it. But yes, he is a stat stuffer. James Harden and Russell Westbrook are the definition of players who are out for records and regular season accolades. And at the end of the day, that is a formula for playoff underachieving. I don't want to spend like too much time on the James Harden thing because like he's yeah he's having a great stretch he's got all these 50 point games the Rockets are winning most of the time but that's like it's just not that important in the grand scheme of the NBA landscape this year and everyone's getting into these MVP debates and really the award is honestly just a lifetime achievement award you know that's really how it felt to me last year after they they wanted to give it to Russ and James in the same year, but Russ had about a million triple doubles, so they couldn't do that. So they're like, James, it's your year. And before this year, they're like, Giannis, it's your year. But then James is like, no, 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 I should win it again. <laughs> I just, I, I really wonder why there's so much emphasis placed on it when really the award that matters is, you know, the Larry O'Brien, the one who wins the NBA Finals, James Harden is not good enough to be the best player on a team that, that gets you there, that wins it for you. So just keep that in mind, um, NBA fans, as you um, go ballistic over regular season basketball. It's really not that important in the grand scheme of things. It's one game out of 82. And with that, this is it. The last true red zone of the year. As I take you through the biggest games of the season. Next week is going to be dedicated entirely to the big one, but now I will break down the AFC and NFC championship games and give my long-awaited predictions to both of those games. Let's get it started in the NFC as my Los Angeles Rams take on the New Orleans Saints in New Orleans. Okay. On a neutral field, the way the Rams are playing right now, I would take the Rams 100%. They have so, it's amazing to me, the way this team has been able to reboot behind the running game. behind And they were always kind of run more run-driven than people wanted to let on. They always ran the ball more than you thought and played through the play-action game. But these last couple of weeks, they've been so um, centric at winning at the line of scrimmage. This is something that they were not as successful in doing and splitting, you know, effectively managing Todd Gurley's carries to manage his health. I'm not sure on his status, if he's 100% not, or if C.J. Anderson honestly just plays a role in this Rams offense now. They like his physicality and they like the way he was able to run the ball. What I will say is if the Rams can run the ball the same way they did against the Cowboys, there's no reason they shouldn't. The Cowboys are just as good defensively in the front seven as the Saints are. If they can do that, they have the capability to win this game. Because of the fact that they need, they if they win at the line of scrimmage, they'll keep the ball out of Drew Brees' hands, who can expose the Rams' secondary and linebackers, the weakest area of this team. You know, crossing routes over the middle of the field, linebacker has, is the issue there. Throwing to Michael Thomas, Marcus Peters is the issue there, right? Those are the things the Saints exploited in the first game, as well as some uh, Rams' coaching mistakes 
uh, early in the game that kind of put them further behind than they should have been given the balance of play. Take those two things out, right? The Rams say, Drew Brees, no, you're not touching the ball that much, and we're not going to make stupid mistakes either. We're going to play sound football here. And I can see a very solid case for the Rams that they are the better team in this matchup. Here's why I think the the Saints should win the game. They have the home field advantage, and it's maybe the best home field advantage in the NFL. They are a dome team, and they get to play at home. That is absolutely huge. Although, it's not as big of an impact on the Rams, who, if they were going to cold weather, could be in some serious trouble because they they struggled when the weather was cold. They get to play in what feels like a sunny Los Angeles day in the the Superdome. The Saints have the edge at quarterback. They have the uh, Super Bowl-winning experience at coach and quarterback. I love Jared Goff. He's not Drew Brees yet. They have a lot of weapons on the offensive side. We know this. But the thing is, the Saints have not been playing to the level the media hypes them to be the last four weeks. They have actually struggled post-Thanksgiving, which was the common thing everyone was harping on the Rams because it was so public that they were struggling post-Thanksgiving. But the difference is the Saints did it and nobody noticed. And that's why, I'll be honest, even in New Orleans, I make a pros and cons list of why each team should win. And the only ones I have for New Orleans are experience, quarterback, and stadium. Everything else is for Los Angeles. And that's why it's going to be close. But at the end of the day, the Los Angeles Rams, in my opinion, will defeat the New Orleans Saints 27-24 in advance of the Super Bowl. It's a risky pick. I know it is. But, and I'm not trying to be a homer or a fan here, but I do really feel like the Rams are the better team and have more of the advantages. New Orleans' advantages, if they're maximized, are definitely 100% enough to beat the Rams. And that's why they're the favorites. They have the biggest advantages. Quarterback, you know, experience, Super Bowl winning pedigree, and their home field. And in conference championship games, that's what wins. I'm just going out on a limb that I feel like the Rams are just that much better, all else equal, that they can still get it done despite New Orleans' advantages. Now I'm going to move over to the AFC where... It's (laughs) It's <laughs> just the ultimate clash. Andy Reid, Bill Belichick, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady. One of the great games of the year. Uh, both of these rematches, New Orleans and New England won. And in this game, the weather, favor, uh, in my opinion, favors the Patriots. Patrick Mahomes has played one cold weather game like this in his career, and it was last week. And he was not great. They won, but he was not great. That can't happen against New England. Tom Brady is the best cold-weather quarterback we've ever seen. He wins games like this, it feels like, every year in Foxborough. Now, the atmosphere, again, on the side of the Chiefs. Home field wins so much of the time in these conference championship games, but so does playoff winning and pedigree, and the Patriots have both. They have the, the dynastic quarterback, the best coach we've ever seen, Belichick, Brady. Those are the two things that give them the advantage. They have a great running game in Sony Michel. The weapons are not as undersold uh, or not as bad as they kind of are are sold to be. Gronk has become suddenly an incredible blocker. (laughs) Instead of a pass catcher, it's it's incredible to watch. But when you really break it down, the Chiefs haven't been the same really in terms of being – Damian Williams looked good last week, but the Colts are still rebuilding. Um, They have not run the ball the same since Kareem Hunt left the team. And again, they are kind of backing into this situation, and that's why I kind of have concerns about how they'll play in this in this cold weather against a team like New England, 
who New England prides themselves, they will beat you. They will not beat themselves. And they have the coach and the quarterback with the experience and the championship pedigree to get back. I think New England defeats the Chiefs 35-34 and advances to the Super Bowl. So that does it. Rams, Patriots, risky picks. I was Saints-Patriots. I That was my pick literally until I started this show. I said I, I had the Saints, but I was just like, I really feel like the Rams are better. That was just what it came down to. I think the Rams are better, even with their weakness in the secondary and at linebacker, just based on current form. I've been confident about the Patriots since I heard Arctic Blast. Since I heard that, I was like, in that weather, ugh, I got to go. I got to go Patriots. But that wraps up the show this week. We will find out who is in the Super Bowl between now and the next time I see you guys. But thank you so much for listening to the J.C. Gonzalez Sports Podcast. I'm your host, and I'll see you next week.